We turn in God's Word tonight back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we continue our evening series on this letter of Paul to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. Remember, it is both. It's not only to Timothy, but to the church there at Ephesus as well. I'm going to pick it up at verse 12. And we'll read through verse 20 this evening as we consider again the theme of grace. 1 Timothy 1, starting to read at verse 12. The breathed out word of God to you and I tonight. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Pointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that that Christ Jesus came into the world. To save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the only, to the king of the ages. Mortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, we ask that the study of your grace this evening will strengthen us in our daily lives. Will you give Pastor Bob what is needed to proclaim what we find in your word? In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When we considered this same passage last Lord's Day evening, we uh, centered our thoughts on that trustworthy saying, that saying that is worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul's admission, of whom I am the foremost. The glorious truth that we are taught in that particular passage. But then we, we come to understand that this was by grace. That Christ coming in the world to save sinners was by grace. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. That's what brings him to say, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Why? Because grace overflowed. So let's go back to this passage tonight and consider it 
under just that theme of grace. I want you to note three things. The reason for grace. Why did Paul receive grace? Why? Why you? Why me? Why does any one of us receive grace? Secondly, the glory of grace. A beautiful doxology that we find there in that 17th verse. Right? The glory of grace. And then thirdly, the challenge of grace. That's on the back side of your sermon outline. The challenge of grace. This may come as a surprise to you and to me. But the reason for grace is not us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It was not about the Apostle Paul. It's hard for us in this day and age to think about that because everything we are told is it's all about us. It really is. It's all about us. It's about our success. It's about our enjoyment. It's about our pleasure. It's about our appearance. It's about us. Everything is about us. We are taught and we, our children are raised in this day and age, in this generation, to think everything is about them. It's all about them. The world revolves around them, around their feelings, around their experiences. The world does it so much and caves so much that way. If you feel like you're a cat, then be a cat. It's okay. Because you see, it's all about us. It's all about us and how we feel and our emotions and our circumstances and our situation. But Paul says, that's not the reason for grace. It's got nothing to do with us. That's humbling. Right, because tucked in the back of our minds somewhere is, it's got to be about us somewhere, don't it? it it's got to be. It, God, God, God really had to choose me for a reason, didn't he? I mean, after all, look who I am. I'm Bob Van Manen. Of course God had to choose Bob Van Manen. Yeah, it's all about grace, but, but it's really because I'm Bob Van Manen. See, there is this, this tendency that we have as sinners to go back to the tree in the garden all the time and say it's about us. That's what Satan is, essence, tempting Eve with. It's about you. It's about you. Take the fruit because life is really all about you. It's not about God. It's not about God's command. It's really about you. Take it, eat, and you will be like God. But you see, in this passage, Paul tells us grace is not about us. God's not looking down going, oh, look at that poor soul, Bob. Man, he is such a poor, wretched soul. He is, he is the foremost of sinners. I, 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 I'll reach down and give him grace and save him. Because you see, if that were really true, then I, then, then I really am the cause of my own salvation. My own pitiful self. It's the cause of my salvation. And one of the themes that Paul has here is it's never about us. Look at verse 16. See, Paul is now explaining 
right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. He's now going to tell you. He's going to lay it out. He's going to tell you. What is the reason? The reason is so that in me, Christ might display his perfect patience. See, grace isn't about me. Grace is about Christ. Grace comes to me so that Christ will be exalted. Grace is given to me. Grace is given to you so that Christ will be lifted up. It's not about us. And until we reach that point, until we come to to grapple with this, I, I don't know if we ever get over it, as it were, but at least until we come to the point where we wrestle with it and we realize, hey, it isn't about me. I receive mercy so that in my Receiving of grace, Christ, perfect patience, might be displayed. It's about Christ using my example, using me. It's us understanding our unworthiness. In the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, I think it's number 350, we, we, we sing of this line. There are two wonders that I confess. The wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. Two wonders I confess. How unworthy I am. Grace is not about me. I am unworthy of grace. I do not deserve grace. I did not earn grace. I'm not so pitiful that God has compassion so that I get grace from him. Nothing in me. Two wonders I confess. The wonders of his redeeming love. Ah. But I receive mercy, Paul says, so that in me, by my transformation, by my being born again, by my receiving mercy, by my being pardoned, the perfect patience of Christ might be on display. The word patience here, in some of your versions, has the term long-suffering. The term long-suffering and patience here means the withholding of God's righteous wrath. So that in me, the display of Christ's long-suffering, the withholding of the wrath of God that I have earned, 
I do deserve that is that which is given to me. That Christ withholding of that judgment and giving to me mercy and pardon. That my example might be used by Christ to bring him glory. Listen how it continues. That in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know what we are? We're a visual board. We're a visible message that Christ uses for the world. What do you mean by that? Christ says to the world, look at the people that I have redeemed by grace. You see how their lives are changed? You see that transformation that has taken place? You see how my display of mercy, how my display of grace has so captivated their life, has so enthralled their life that they cannot help but live for my glory. They cannot help but live for my praise. They cannot help but shout and sing and lift up. Glorify my name. And they can't wait to tell people what I've done for them. See, it's not about us. The reason grace comes is for the glory of Christ. And you got to see the Apostle Paul, right? He's writing, okay, right? As an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. And he's thinking of all the people on life's journey he has meant since the road to Damascus. All those people that Christ has used Paul and Paul's changed life to be the example of what grace does. I want to know. And he's pausing. He's reflecting on this. He's thinking about this. And what does he do? As he thinks about how this grace has worked. How undeserving he is of this grace. And, and how Christ is using his life for Christ's own glory. He erupts in this glorious doxology to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Where would we expect to find that? Well, that probably should come at the end of the book of Timothy. That's a doxology that comes at the end. But Paul can't contain himself. The spirit will not let Paul be contained here. The Spirit is leaving, leading and driving Paul. Paul, do you realize how great grace is? And Paul says, yes, yes. So to him, to him, to him alone. To who? 
to God the Father, to God the Son, to God the Holy Spirit, who saves. And Him alone. Do you see now why? When you truly understand the biblical concept of grace, why the thinking of the fact of, well, no, God really saved me because he looked down through the ages and saw that my heart would turn to him. So it's really, God's grace is activated by what I have done. It's such an affront. It's such a blasphemous thing. That's horrible. God's grace is activated by my behavior? How could my behavior of unworthiness do anything? Well, you see, there's that little part of you that really isn't corrupted by sin. You have this will thing that that can still choose God. What did we sing? It is not that I did choose you. See, when you understand what grace really is, you separate yourself from any thought, any notion that what you have done earns any grace. Our showing up to church twice on Sunday doesn't earn us God's grace. Our tithing doesn't earn us God's grace. Our reading our Bible every day doesn't earn us God's grace. Our praying every day doesn't earn us God's grace. Nothing earns us God's grace. And Paul is is taking this in. And so he erupts with this doxology. To a God who is the king of the ages. Whose dominion is forever and ever. Whose dominion shall never cease. Psalm 145. God's rule as king is not temporary. He's never voted out of office. Even though popular opinion doesn't even recognize him or acknowledge him. It doesn't change the outcome that God is the king. And as Paul looks at this Roman society... This disgusting Roman culture around him. He still acknowledges God is the king of the ages. Generation after generation. Time after time after time. Always was, always is, and always will be king. Nobody is ever going to dethrone God. What does that mean about his salvation? It's pretty secure in the hands of the king of the ages. Who is also, Paul says, immortal. Or as some versions use the word, imperishable. He doesn't decline. He doesn't need refueling. He doesn't need recharging. It's not like your electric car. You still got to plug it in and recharge the thing. God doesn't need a recharging because he never Loses anything. Can God's grace sustain me through everything? Yes. Why? Because the supply of grace never fails. It never diminishes. 
That's why God can say in the midst of troubles, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Because it's a grace that never dwindles. All that we see around us perishes, doesn't it? People perish. Possessions perish. Things perish. And someday even this creation is going to perish. But not God. Not God. Paul writes in that 17th verse, the king of the ages who is immortal and invisible because God is spirit. He has no no physical form that in some way can diminish or wear out. Doesn't need new body parts. Doesn't need to go into surgery and have new shoulders put in or new knees or have back operation. Have heart valves. Have cancer scraped from them. Not God. Because God is spirit. And he's the only one. He's writing this to Timothy. Where did I tell you Timothy is serving? Where is he? What city? He's in Ephesus. One of the crown jewels. Rome. One of the seven wonders stands there. The temple to Artemis or Diana. Know what it is today? Rubble. You know what God is today? King. In the midst of a culture full of these gods, full of these temples, Paul says to Timothy, when you minister there in Ephesus, you remember that there is only one God. Those gods that all those Ephesians go to, that all those silversmiths are working towards and for, those gods on top of that hill in Athens, those gods in all of those temples in Rome, They don't even exist, Timothy. So to the only God, be honor and glory. Be praise and adoration. See, it goes to him. It goes to him. See, the reason for grace is not me, it's Christ. So that all the glory, all the glory goes to him. None of that glory of salvation comes to me. Bob, you were so smart to accept that invitation that Christ gave to you. Yes, I was rather wise to do that, wasn't I? It was a smart thing for me to do. No, no. I was dead in my trespasses in sin. It's only by God's work. Only by God's grace. It's only by God's moving that there is salvation. That amazing? Yeah, that that's that's what he wrote, isn't it? It's amazing grace. 
Because it saves wretches like you and me. I was blind, but he made me see. It's all Christ. It's all for the glory of Christ. It's all to glorify and to praise and adore the one true living God. Now, Timothy, you need to fight for that. That, Timothy, is what you need to fight for. See, that's the challenge of grace. That's what happens in verses 18 through 20. Paul now says, that's pretty great, isn't it? That's pretty amazing. That's pretty spectacular what God has done for it. Now, don't let folks like Hymenaeus and Alexander rob people of that grace. Don't let them diminish that grace. Don't let them lessen that grace. Don't let them cheapen that grace. Don't let them change the grace of God into a license for sin. Timothy, you need to wage the good warfare. Isn't that an interesting expression? The end there of 19. That by them you may wage the good warfare. He's going to use that expression several times, actually, throughout First and Second Timothy. He's going to talk about the good fight. He's not talking about warfare. He qualifies it. He qualifies it with the word good. And for you and I as believers in the word of God, that's an important word. Because in the Bible, good is not good, better, and best. Good is perfection. On the first day, God saw that there was light and he saw that it was good. He makes the sun, moon, and stars and he sees that it is good. He makes the fish and the birds and he sees that it is good. Good means perfect. The right. The exactly as it should be. Timothy, you need to wage the good warfare of grace. It comes as a charge. This charge I entrust to you. Paul is speaking in terms of being a military commander. And he's charging this young captain. You need to go to Ephesus, and you need to engage in the good warfare of grace. You need to engage in that, Timothy. But, Timothy, you need to make sure that it's the good warfare. What qualifies the good warfare? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. See, he doesn't say to Timothy... Timothy, now to go to Ephesus and just start blasting away. Just nail them. Just nail them right and left, Timothy. Just go at it. Just go on a rampage, Timothy. No, you need to conduct the good warfare. Holding faith and the good conscience. Let me give you this example. 
Let us suppose that the United States of America were invaded by a horrific country filled with just absolute tyranny. It's, it's, it's bad. And you decide, I know who the enemy is and I know the enemy is bad. I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go after him. The United States Army or the United States Marines, if you prefer, issues you this amazing weapon. It's an amazing weapon. High-powered scope, right? Automatic feed, whatever you want. It's got all the bells and whistles. You've never seen it before. You've never shot it before. You've never operated it before. You have no clue how it works. You don't even know where the trigger is on this thing. It's so decked out. But you're going to go to war. You get out there at the battlefield and the fight engages and you look at your weapon and you go, now what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know how it works. Maybe. I'm supposed to throw it at them. Because I didn't take the time to study the manual to know how to conduct the good warfare. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, if you're going to conduct this warfare, you need to know this. You don't need to know the last writings of so-and-so and so-and-so. You need to know this. This has to be part of your life. This has to be a part of your thinking. You need to know it. Genesis to Revelation. You need to be in this word. That's why Paul later is going to say to Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. Hey, not find somebody who's written some book and shove it at the enemy. Get to the word. This is our weapon. But there are so many, so many who want to wage the warfare in this day and age who are ignorant of what this book actually says. They rip pages out of it. They rip sections out of it. They distort sections. Why? Because they don't know how to read the word from Genesis to Revelation and understand how God uses his word as the sword of the Spirit as that high power weapon that you've been issued in the war. This is the weapon. This is what we need to know. This is what we need to go into the world with. And especially after we have seen what happened in our nation this past November, we need to know this word. Because it's obvious our nation doesn't know it. We're not called to throw stones. We're not called to throw catechisms. We're called to make use of the word of God. So I encourage you, as Paul is encouraging Timothy, be in the word. How much are you really reading this? 
much are you studying this? Are you, are you in this? Are you reading it? Are you reflecting on it? Are you allowing iron to sharpen iron? Or are you coming at your own ideas and understandings? Because this is the weapon of warfare. And my friends, it is becoming increasingly clear that we, like Timothy, are going to have to engage the good warfare. And it wasn't against the culture. It was in the church itself. Timothy, go back to Ephesus. Fight the good warfare. But fight the warfare of faith. The word faith there means knowledge and understanding. And believing the truth that God has given. And then, Timothy, you need to do one other thing to fight this good warfare. You not only need to know the truth, to know your weapon, to know how to make use of this, but you also have to have a good conscience. Why would a good conscience be important in the fight? What Paul is saying to Timothy is this. Timothy, look at yourself in the mirror. What do you see? I see the foremost of sinners. Examine your own heart, Timothy. Examine your own life. And go forward into this battle, this warfare, with good conscience. Meaning, I'm clear with God. I am right with God because of Jesus Christ. I've acknowledged and repented of my own sin. We're good. We're good at taking the speck out of other people's eye and ignoring the log in our own. Timothy, get the log out of your own eye and then go fight the faith for the faith. Go fight the good warfare. This doesn't diminish the call to war. This doesn't diminish the call to the fight. But it does tell us how we are to engage the enemy. Not our personal opinions. Not rants and raves. The word of God. God's truth. Which penetrates the heart. Because Timothy, grace is that great. Grace is that amazing. It's worth the fight. It's worth the cost. Because you see, that's what Hymenaeus and Alexander are doing. They're distorting the grace of God. They're distorting what it means to be a believer. They're distorting what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how did you become a follower of Jesus Christ? One way and one way alone, by grace. It's worth the fight, Timothy. Go back. Go back to Ephesus. I give you that charge. But fight the good warfare. Fight it in faith. And fight it in a good conscience. Paul, at the end of his life, is going to say, I have fought the good fight. I hope each one of us at the end of our life's journey can say that as well. Not that we have fought, (laughs) but we've fought the good fight. The worthwhile fight. And we fought it as Christ would have us fight it. Amen? Amen. Let's turn in our hymn books.